Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast with me, Toby Webb. And joining me for this next hour are a series of speakers from outside the wine industry, talking about what the wine industry can learn from other industries. It's part of a conference we held on the 26th and 27th of November 2020, which was sponsored by the British Standards Institution, Chateau Lube, Concha Itoro, DM and Control Union. In this podcast from the 27th of November 2020, you'll hear my colleague Ian Welsh from Innovation Forum uh, work through a panel of experts from outside the industry to talk about lessons learned on sustainability. So enjoy the next hour, and if you would like more podcasts, please do search for Sustainable Wine on your podcast app. Welcome, everybody. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so uh, welcome. This session, we're going to talk about uh, what the wine industry can learn about sustainability from other industries. We've got a, a stellar panel to uh, help take us through the session and to, I hope, uh, inform uh, those of you in the wine sector some of the things, some of the issues that other sectors have had to to encounter and deal with. So joining me, we have uh, Dr. Simon Lord, who's an independent palm oil and sustainability expert. Anna Terrell, who's uh, head of environment with Tesco. I hope we have Gordon Muir on the line. Uh, indeed, I'm informed that we do. Welcome, Gordon. He's head of sales at Gordon and McPhail Whiskey and Premium Spirit Merchants. Ignacio Gavilan joins us, who is the Director of Environmental Sustainability with the Consumer Goods Forum. And we have Bastian Sashi, CEO of the Earthworm Foundation. So welcome, welcome to you all. Okay, uh, Bastian, perhaps you can go first. Give us a quick introduction to Earthworm. Um, but then perhaps you can set the scene around uh, typical tropical commodity supply chain challenges. What are the things that you're seeing going on? Bastian. Thanks, Jan, and uh, hi, everyone. Um, pleasure to be with you today. And interesting to be talking about uh, the parallels between what exists in today, uh, most of raw materials, and what happens with the wine industry. Actually, I often refer to the wine industry as a reference or as an example to commodity industries that are dealing with the challenge of sustainability. Not because um, winemakers are more sustainable, or winemaking is more sustainable by a sense. I don't, I don't think necessarily that's the case. But by the nature the, of, of the supply chain. Um, what happened with cocoa, palm oil, um, with basically pulp, m- most of the things that are used into what we eat and, and what we wear, um, also what we burn sometimes when you talk about energy, uh, are called what we call commodities. Commodities means that the story... Uh, of the product has been erased by traders that sit between the brand who needs the raw materials to product, produce a product and, and, uh, and the producer, the farmers, the plantation, the agribusinesses that are on the other end. And what these traders do basically, and they've been asked to do that by most of the brands, is to optimize cost and, and reduce cost and be able to respond to logistical demands at any time. Uh, to be highly flexible. And the best way to do that is to make every kilogram of cocoa, every ton of palm oil, completely interchangeable, which means that um, one ton from Peru is the same than one ton from Indonesia is the same than one ton from Africa. And the big challenge around that is you lose the traceability. Uh, you lose, and, and, and inevitably, the, the, what happens on the other hand at the farmer's side is that the... the, um, the how would I say, the, the practices are pushed down because you're going to get the cheapest 
raw material where you are actually pushing out most of the cost to nature and to people, where you extract or rely more on natural and human capital. That's where you're going to have the concentration of the production. So that's where all the palm oil is coming from Indonesia. All the soybean are coming from, from, uh, from Brazil. And the risk is the commoditization of, of raw materials inevitably leads to that. At Earthworm, we've worked for 20 years to, and our objective is to transform them because we believe that what we consume every day is what impacts the world the most. So if we change that, we can change the world. So that's, that's what we do. And the way we do it is try to get brands to be able to answer three very simple questions, which are, where does it come from? So where does my raw material come from and it, uh, that, that, that I'm using? Who has produced it? Uh, is it which farmer, where is it, how is it doing, and how has it been produced? Okay, so these three questions are key. And you can only answer these, these three questions when you actually decommoditize. So you enter this uh, opacity and you try to figure out what happens. A lot of our work is about doing that. And then it, a lot of it is about cultivating and working with the farmers on the ground or with the, agri the agribusinesses to actually figure out what does it mean to do it in the right way and how, do we, how can they value that throughout the supply chain? I will finish maybe just, uh, uh, and I'll let Ian continue, but um, we don't believe that certification is a way to transform things. It's actually a better commodity. It's something to have a second category of commodity, a little bit better. What we believe is, um, and this is why the wine industry is interesting, is that every terroir, every origin is different because of its in, in you know the way people and nature are, are creating something in that place, be it in San Martin in Peru, in the Dominican Republic for cocoa, I'm using examples, uh, or, or coffee uh, in Guatemala, whatever. These terroirs are unique places. They have their unique ecosystem diversity and the unique cultures of people. Actually, if you take them as they are and you try to figure out with the people there, how can we restore with the support of the supply chain and make it unique, precious, regenerative, then we can have a diversity of terroirs all around the world. The wine industry does that for some of the wines. Some of the wines are more commodity. So the challenge, I would say, is to resist and cultivate that uniqueness and cultivate the way of, of bringing that story to, to the public. Then, of course, you need to decide whether you're going to have a story that is just about a place or is it the place and the quality, the environmental and social quality of, of your wine yards, uh, of how the wine is made, etc. And that's, how, uh, that's all the other elements that I'm sure you've been discussing around soil, regenerative, less pesticides, etc., etc., and human rights, of course. Thank you. Thanks, Bastian. Um, it strikes me that problems have arisen when commodities have expanded their production. What are the... Uh, the, the things that you would suggest to the wine sector, if they're looking at expanding production to new territories, what are the things you need to avoid doing? I think they should avoid commoditizing uh, and making wine just, yeah, wine, a commodity. I think, I think uh, a wine is a terroir and every terroir is something that is uh, unique to, to the earth. I mean, in Burgundy, they've managed to create, I don't know, a thousand climates, climates uh, little places that are now worse a lot. The big problem of the commodities is at the end of the day, the farm is not getting enough money. Okay. It's not getting enough money because it's all leveled down by the bottom. 
the winemakers is one of the industry where some of the farmers are doing very well. Some of the viticulturists are doing very well. So, so let's keep that fair and good distribution of value across the chain. And especially for the lower range where the temptation of commoditizing is there, I would say try to resist that. Because eventually, if you want it to be sustainable, if you want to make a wine of good environmentalist and social quality, you're going to have to walk backwards afterwards. You, you, you need to deconstruct that to be able to make, uh, to make, uh, to bring the very story of the place you're sourcing from come to surface again. The trend is huge in other commodities, in cocoa, in coffee, you can see it. Uh, they're following basically the wine industry in a way, in terms of decommoditization. But they're moving fast as well on the regeneration aspects, which I think is something that the wine industry can, can integrate in its current model. So resist commoditization would be my message. I guess it all comes down to don't lose the sense of value in, in the product that sometimes has got lost in so many uh, of the other commodity markets. Okay, Bastian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Simon, uh, perhaps I can turn to you. And uh, just before I do, the, just a reminder everybody, please do use the chat function to put your questions and points and I'll use them and I'll put them to our panelists later on. Simon Lord, perhaps I can turn to you now. Let's, let's dig specifically into palm oil. What are the mistakes that palm oil has made that the wine sector must avoid? Well, good morning, everyone. And Ian, I don't think we've got long enough to discuss all the mistakes <laughs> that we actually made because we did. I think we can sum it up by basically saying that we were too slow to respond. When we did, we did it with too little. Uh, the industry didn't get behind it, so there were too few. And then fundamentally, we got the whole communication story wrong. The history of palm oil is uh, a history that's intertwined with conflict and turmoil, both from a social landscape and from a, a physical landscape. Uh, it's been accused of a lot of things. Uh, some of it is, is justified. Uh, some of it isn't. There are differences. There are good commodities, as somebody has just texted. Uh, there are good oil and there are poor oil producers. Bastian's right. You know, where it comes from, who produces it and how do they actually grow it on that piece of land are absolutely important. But I think the rising crescendo of criticism of oil palm eventually resulted in the formation of a round table on sustainable palm oil. And really too few people came to that table too few players. It's still one of the best standards available, but its uptake is still just 20%. That means 80% of the industry doesn't fall under these voluntary regulations. As a practitioner, and I was for 35 years, that standard helps set a framework. But it's not the be-all and the end-all. It's not going to solve your problems. What it does is allow you to attack those problems in a disciplined framework and in a process way, which allows you to systematically go through what are very large areas of land and sort things out. I guess it's, there are many things uh, which are similar to oil palm and to the growing of vines in that, that essentially all agribusiness have these commonalities and the three big ones are really how you tackle biodiversity, how you tackle inequality, 
And what are you doing in terms of climate action? You know, are you still part of the problem or are you becoming part of the solution? But to move forward, we need to actually work in such a way that we have a production and a protection system alongside. The, the world is slowly using up all of its resources. Bats have been accelerating uh, each year. Climate change is upon us. Migrant labor, staff issues, community rights are still prevalent. So essentially, my message would be that, that the commodity of oil palm did not take sustainability seriously enough at the early stages. And as a consequence, it has been on the back foot ever since um, for the last two decades. And it's very hard to get ahead of that curve once you start off, uh, if I can use like Formula One, when you start off way back with the rest of the crowd, you need to get out in pole position. I think wine has a wonderful story. Bastian's eloquently put that, the provenance where it comes from of wine, that uniqueness of it. There is a, a chance for you to come together and get the wrapper of the narrative that you're talking about that makes wine so unique uh, and get that the forefront. Thanks. Thank you, Simon. Um, it is also fascinating to me that only 20% of uh, the palm oil sector is involved in the RSPO. It's amazing. Um, what are the incentives then that are wrong in the sector? Why is it, why are there not incentives for the sector to be much more part of the RSPO? To implement any standard on the ground, whether it's a uh, what was the Sustainable Agricultural Network, or now the Rainforest Alliance standard, or whether it's the RSPO or some of the national standards, there is a huge amount of resources needed. And it's not just cash. It's ability of people. It's capabilities of people to actually understand. And I think there are still too few people that understand what sustainability really means on the ground. And to be able to translate principles into actual practices that everybody can write a policy everybody can write a big strategy but to actually make that policy and that strategy real on the ground is is not very easy the costs of auditing seem to be far in excess of what they should be and so that for every ton of oil you're probably adding about eight us dollars to the cost of that oil by following a certification system of some form. Now that puts you at a price differential. So one hopes that you would be able to reclaim that by attract, attracting a premium to your products. And the reality is that maybe the premiums were there for the first movers and they are still there. But actually those premiums are slowly being eroded and those premiums are not sufficient to really cover the costs. When you move to the small farmer and the small medium enterprises, the commoditization means that that circuit breaker between the big players and some of their external crop sources means that you don't have that connect. And not having that connect means that they're not part of the supply chain and therefore they don't share equally in this premium. There's a power imbalance. Thanks, Simon. Yes, I mean, so much of 
any product comes down to uh, cost and income for, for, for the producers at the end of the day. Thank you, Simon. A lot we can come back to. And thank you also for all the questions and, and points coming in. I'm, I'm joining you in the chat. I'm looking forward to coming back to some of those points in a second. But let me bring in uh, Gordon Muir now. Gordon, the whiskey industry moved significantly over the past uh, few decades. So how has the whiskey sector really grasped the sustainability nettle? Gordon. Um, I think it's a it's a mixed picture. Um, morning, everyone. Uh, single malt Scotch whisky is uh, perhaps the opposite of a commodity. Its whole uh, essence is built on the specifics of the place, and the industry's done a terrific job over the years of really building a lot of value into that, um, which is uh, allows for some better behaviours. It's uh, from a broader sense of, of sustainability. Uh, culturally, socially, it's a, it's a distributed uh, industry which creates valuable jobs in in rural areas. So that's all good. It does mean it's fairly inefficient, and some of the tricks uh, that we played to justify the value that gets built around the category are um, perhaps at worst frivolous. The amount of packaging that we effort and cost and resources we put into packaging that gets thrown away when you open a bottle is uh, perhaps not a, a great model. And there is a lot of work being done to try and offer that same experience, but with, uh, with less uh, environmental cost. In terms of energy and uh, our resource footprint, we're lucky that we're uh, Scottish. In fact, we're Highland Scottish mostly, and that makes us extremely thrifty. And so a lot of distilleries were set up in origin with uh, a lot of the heavy amount of energy that's used to, to heat water principally, and then to uh, let it, uh, infuse and then ferment and then uh, boil it again. That's a lot of energy, but there's lots of energy recovery built into the way that, that the industry works. And uh, indeed on casks, which are, create so much of the flavor and so much of the interest, particularly at the high end of our category, uh, those casks are reused and reused. Uh, so the, the, one, of the, one of the three R's is at least applied to the way that the product's made. Um, the points in certification are interesting. Uh, my company uh, has a distillery where we brought the first organic whiskey to market, and that is in mature Western markets, definitely a differentiator, drives a little bit of price, drives some awareness, gets you distribution and, and uh, attention in perhaps uh, uh, sales channels that you wouldn't naturally have as a, as a fairly niche uh, whiskey manufacturer. Um, but it's still a relatively small part. People are more interested in uh, the the age, the the quality of the spirit, and the the maturation uh, that it, that it's had. So, as a, a category which has done a good job on the specificity, can't even say that specificity of place, driving value. I think we we can be a, an example. Um, but all of this discussions around the top end of the market. I'm talking about single malt because that's what my category, that my company makes. Um, similarly to single origin chocolate or single origin coffee or uh, wine with a, 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 an AOC, uh, that's quite expensive. And I think that the chat in the side bar about how we bring um, better practices to consumers who can't afford to buy into those uh, choosier, more special uh, parts of our categories is really the, the, the biggest challenge. And I don't think we've met that very well in spirits yet. Thanks, Gordon. Uh, I know it's slightly off topic, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, how whiskey has introduced terroir into its thinking around its, its marketing. Now, you and I both know that uh, whiskey can be made anywhere, and it's not really where it's made that lends the flavour. It's the shape of the stills and what it's matured in. But how has the industry used the fact that it, whiskey can be made in you know, very exciting and wonderful places in Scotland? How has it used that in its marketing? Uh 
it, that's a, a really good question. And again, it comes back to at the at the top of the pyramid, it's done extremely well. And it's not just a drinks category now, it's a drinks and tourism category. The rules, the laws from the Scotch Whiskey Association, which means to be called Scotch Whiskey, there are certain conditions that have to be made, which are apart from anything else that needs to be uh, produced and distilled and bottled in Scotland, uh, mean that it's uh, it puts certain restrictions on us. It means that we can't be... Um, you can't legally make a Scotch whiskey anywhere else. You can't do the job that many breweries have done, for example, where you, you have many, many imprints from the same uh, <clears throat> mega production facility. Um, but then the, the places that uh, Scotch whiskey is often made do tend to be very beautiful. Scotland has done a very good job of packaging itself as a tourist destination over the last five years uh, or 10 years uh, with things like the North Coast 500 and, and, and beautiful advertising bringing, well, up until a certain coronavirus struck, uh, millions of visitors a year and coming to do well-marked, well-set-out tourist trails effectively, go down Speyside, visit the distilleries, have a wonderful experience. It's really elevated the whole food and drink uh, category and the boom in, in craft gins is no surprise as, as, as part of that as, as uh, operators look to get into something that uh, matures a little quicker. Um, so being able to sell ourselves uh, around the world on the strength of that beautiful Scottishness is, is a definite advantage for an individual uh, producer it's not a massive advantage it gets your first toe in the door but then you really have to work very hard to differentiate which brings us back to is are we commoditizing scotland just albeit as a sort of uh, semi-luxury commodity yes you just thought scotland would be a luxury commodity never thought of it that way uh, thank you gordon um we'll come back to many of these points i'm sure and uh, as a whiskey uh, industry representative do um on the chat any questions you have uh from the wine sector for Gordon, then I'm very happy to put them to him. Okay, Anna, let me turn to you. Anna Terrell from Tesco, let me turn to you. Um, what for you, uh, or where for you is the wine sector on your radar in terms of sustainability? And what do you, when do you think, what do you think that retailers are going to expect from the wine sector, reflected perhaps on what you've seen from, um, from other, other sectors? Anna. Thanks, Ian, um, and good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Um, I think it's a really interesting one because for for retailers, when we look at kind of our biggest, most material um, risk areas from a sustainability standpoint, I don't think um, wine necessarily comes to the fore. Um, and that's probably for, for no other reason than the fact that there are certain, um, as has just already been discussed you know certain uh, ingredients and commodities that are just much more in the public eye right now when it comes to sustainability um and civil society organizations ngos that, that tend to kind of chase certain things palm oil being one of them um so that kind of provides a bit of ground cover i would suggest for other other parts um uh other categories within the within the retail landscape um i think there are two elements uh, uh from a tesco perspective on this um and uh, let me start with the perhaps less uh, expected one, which is around climate. Um, so Tesco, um, in back in 2017, um, signed up to what's called the Task Force uh, for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which sounds a bit techy, uh, but basically what it means is, um, as a company, we kind of commit to uh, properly understanding the kind of uh, climate-related risks um, that are impacting our business and, and the financial linkages to that. So put quantifying the climate risk uh, that our, our business is exposed to. Now, most of that climate risk sits in our supply chains, and that means in our product kind of 
um, in, in agriculture disproportionately. Um, and over the last kind of couple of years, what we've done is we've, we've actually identified, we've gone category by category within the business. Start Starting with the, the most exposed categories, so you think about produce, you know, fresh fruit and veg, things like that, uh, to understand the kind of climate risks and the exposures. Um, and we've we've done a couple of, of phases of that work. Um, look, and we'll be we report on it annually. So as part of this um, TCFD process, you you provide an annual disclosure in your annual report. Um, going forward, the next phase actually is to include our beers, wines, and spirits category, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, so, uh, and that's really where you start to dig into understanding what the climate related risks look like within the, you know, within the wine industry. Now, you know, most people on this call will be much more au fait and familiar with, with what that looks like than I am. But the reason I kind of flag it is because actually it's, it's, it, it kind of shows you the level of importance and the attention that a company like Tesco is placing, both in terms of the long-term sustainability and viability of the sector and the supply chain in order to be able to feed product into the marketplace and, and put um, product on shelves. So that's a really important one to think about, climate, climate impacts on obviously um, you know, wine growing regions, et cetera, which we're, you know, are increasingly covered in the press, but, you know, for consumers, they still don't really, don't really get it. The other area obviously would be remiss of me not to mention, which is packaging. Um, and this is uh, just such a fraught area, I would say for any company, um, because it's, we're still trying to work through what the right thing to do is, right? So for Tesco, we've got our four R's and actually Gordon's mentioned three. Um, our four R's are kind of basically remove packaging where we can, reduce it where we can't, reuse more of it, and recycle what's left. So the four R's, remove, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and we've made a number of commitments around that um, uh, space, which you know, are all on the, on the website. Um, what's really interesting is um, when we talk about packaging, we often talk about kind of the technical ability, the feasibility of making materials changes. And we talk about life cycle assessments and what's better and what's worse. Is it glass? Is it recyclable PET? When you actually do the analysis, kind of net net, they, they kind of actually net out that, you know, there are pros and cons to, to, to recyclable plastic materials versus, versus glass. Um, and you can quite quickly go down a rabbit hole there. Um, so that's kind of, but if you take a step back away from the, the, the kind of technical geeky analysis um, and you think bigger picture, kind of there are two key bits to this. One is around how product gets into stores and it's transportation. And, you know, obviously glass is very heavy um, and the shape of, of traditional wine bottles doesn't necessarily facilitate, you know, a real complete efficiency when you're when you're looking at distribution versus, say, something that's flat pack. Uh, for example. So di distribution, transportation carries with it quite a lot of environmental cost. Um, and that's something that we need to be thinking about, all of us actually, irrespective of the product. Um, the other thing though, which makes all of this just so much more challenging is the consumer, the role of the customer. Now, you can make as many innovations, material changes, you know, change the shape of your, your packaging, do whatever you need to to make it more environmentally efficient. But fundamentally, if customers, consumers don't buy it, then it's not necessarily a viable product. So there's this there's this real tension that brands and businesses and retailers have to kind of just play with, which is what do we how can we take consumers, customers on the journey with us 
because part of this is about education. Part of this, part of this is around information and sharing more information about the journey that our products go on. And then part of it's also about making some of those changes that we've, we've talked about. Um, but it's really, really tricky. I think the wine industry, um, you know, it, it, it occupies quite a special place. Um, and I think, you know, when you start to kind of dig into it, there may be some, some there, we start to see some interesting innovations coming through. The question is, can you ever scale them? And can you scale them at a price point that consumers actually will want to, to buy? Um, and that's the real challenge. So, you know, it, this is, there is no one solution to this stuff right now. Um, and packaging is going to continue to, to dominate the landscape, I think, when it comes to, you know, what's the most sustainable thing to do. But all I would say is we have to look at this from the consumer, the customer, and also, you know, importantly, how are our efforts that we're undertaking as individual companies, um, how do they line up with actually those of our, our customers, our consumers, the retailers, et cetera. So it's, it's a tricky, tricky space. Thanks, Anna. Th thanks, and thank you. Um, I know that the uh, glass bottle issue came up a bit yesterday. Is there, for you then, um, and sorry to put you on the spot, is there a sort of price point where you reckon at Tesco that this is where potentially consumers may be prepared to buy a bottle of wine in a non-glass bottle or some kind of refillable container versus here's where it has to be sold in a glass bottle because that's what the consumer expects? I think it's really difficult. So I'm, I, I can't give you a straight answer. I, I mean, when I look at some of the comments in the chat, this has already been surfaced. I think there are different segments of consumer that have, you know, will will follow certain price point bands. And what we see, you know, today, and I don't want to kind of, this is making it a little bit um, uh, kind of abstract, but uh, when we look at, for example, packaged wine, boxed wine, um, there's a huge debate raging about, about the quality and the value of boxed wine and the consumers that, that tend to buy them versus glass, et cetera. Um, I think we probably need to park that or at least just kind of explode it and think really outside of the box in terms of what the future looks like. Um, it's, it's not quite so straightforward. Um, what I think is really interesting, though, and this is something that Tesco and other retailers are looking more and more at um, at the moment, is reuse. Um, so Tesco launched Loop earlier this year. Loop is a, an independent system. It's a, it's a kind of a reuse system, reuse model. Um, it's uh, so you can you basically buy online. It gets to delivered to you. Give it back. They refill. Can kind of carry on. Um, I think wine has massive potential. I mean, you know, aside from the the obvious challenges associated with reuse models for 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 wine or refill for wine, but there's massive potential there if we were willing to unpack it. Um, obviously, highly dependent on the location of the stores and the sites where you'll be selling. But actually, I think it brings with it some really interesting opportunities. Um, not only does it get people closer to the process and make them feel part of it, but obviously it, it starts to get into that issue around packaging um, in a way that we haven't really seen before. So what I would say is reuse, much more to come, much, much more focus from the retailers as well. Still trying to work it through in terms of scale and getting the price point right um, and also making sure that customers kind of understand how they can best engage with it. But I do think that we're going to see more of that in the future. I also think we're probably going to see more. I mean, we're starting to see much more fragmentation in terms of the use of aluminium cans or boxed wine that's kind of being marketed in, in relation to certain sustainability claims. I'm sure that's going to continue. Um, 
the, the proof will be in how this actually all lands with the consumer and, and whether we start to see any sizable shifts. I, I don't know right now. Thanks. Thanks, Anna. Now, I'll come to Ignacio in a second. I just want to put the uh, packaging point back to Gordon. Now, I know that um, the whisky industry has, in fact, been using reusable packaging for some time. For example, the Brucladi Distillery on Isla, personal favourite of mine. Uh, I've regularly gone and refilled from their shop. They have a, they have a, a cask set up and you refill a bottle from the shop, um, which is uh, something that um, I've done uh, on many occasions. So, Gordon, from you then, where is the whisky industry in terms of uh, transporting heavy glass bottles around the world? It depends a little bit by, by sector. Um, there's been a good bit of work done on, on lightweighting of bottles in, in more um, uh, value-led uh, whiskies, as indeed there has been in <coughs> beers and other uh, and wines and other related categories. Um, for uh, the, the higher-end uh, products, uh, investment is so much a part of the market, um, which is kind of weird from a sustainability point of view because it's not even getting drunk, it's getting uh, held onto and collected by wealthy people with more money than sense. Uh, uh, and in that case, the packaging is an integral part of it. And a, a lot of, indeed, some of the associated industries to ours around um, craft glass making rely on on that uh, almost as a, a part of the thing you're buying. You're buying the rare and special whiskey and you're buying the beautiful container that it's in. Um, the overall footprint of that, I suppose, compared to whiskey, which people drink on the weekend, is is, uh, is negligible. And I'm not going to get into the uh, end-to-end analysis. Ian, of you uh, driving from Buckinghamshire to Isla to fill your bottle of whiskey, that, that maybe doesn't entirely bear scrutiny. Um, but so th- there are genuine efforts going on on lightweighting, which is partly driven by retailers uh, like Tesco and others uh, pushing suppliers on sustainability uh, standards. And partly it does take cost out um, uh, as well. So there's that sweet spot a little bit like the um, the distillery set up in the 1800s with an eye on being thrifty and trying to recover and reuse as much energy as possible. We all want to take cost out where it doesn't affect the consumer's experience, don't we? So that that, that uh, work is is uh, uh, definitely at the forefront of people's minds. Thanks, Gordon. And I, I promise I only refilled at Brewer Clary when I was staying next door in Port Charlotte. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you, Gordon. Right, um, Ignacio, thank you um, for your, your patience. Ignacio, perhaps you can reflect on what you've heard uh, so far, and also in your work with the Consumer Goods Forum, what is it that you want to see the wine sector doing more of and better? Ignacio. Good, thank you. So let me start by the, the second point, uh, and it links a little bit with what Anna was was commenting. And just for, for those um, uh, in the, in the uh, room, um, the Consumer Goods Forum brings together retailers and manufacturers from across the world. So the Tesco's, the Walmart's, um, uh, the Sainsbury's and then also the, the manufacturers like uh, Nestle's or Kellogg's. So I sit on a very interesting position. I can look at, at all of these companies and how they operate. So I think for this for this uh, audience, it would be beneficial. beneficial. Uh, um, the things that I, I have learned over these past years or what I hear from members on high-end products like chocolate, like wine, on, on how they communicate sustainability credentials. So Anna mentioned the, the consumer angle. So in general, people who buy wine are expecting to be ethically sourced, fairly traded, kind to the environment. Uh, so what are the elements that accompany any of, of you producers in, in the audience? The three elements that a trusted company uh, uh, can, can really show to, to be truly t- trustworthy as a business, you need to bring your product information up to the level of your corporate disclosure 
and your brand purpose work. So this all sounds like very techy, but your corporate practice, for example, you need to communicate your policy, your performance very clearly to an increasingly knowledgeable consumer. Uh, how is my vineyard progressing on specific issues that are relevant for the industry, such as labor, uh, during harvest season, pesticides, herbicides, waste, packaging, uh, carbon reduction, the whole discussion around packaging that we just had. Second one is, is the product proof to consumers? What is the impact of what I'm actually buying? Uh, human trust is not a, a really a tradable commodity. It's an emotional value. Uh, so something very difficult for businesses to do, uh, and it links a little bit with what Simon was saying, is accepting the limitations and the responsibility when things go wrong. Uh, so don't make transparency a one-off, uh, a response to criticism. Uh, we've heard that from palm oil. Uh, and the third one is is the brand purpose. So communicate your values and beliefs. This is something a lot of companies struggle with because um, there's a logic on, on of this, but there's a magic. How do you communicate that to your consumer? Because uh, people are aligned around values. So does this brand align with my values as a consumer? So people who buy wine from a specific uh, a brand or producer expected to be, as I mentioned, ethically sourced and, and fairly traded and kind to the environment. Um, so I just wanted to bring those those elements to the conversation in case it was helpful. What I heard today, um, it's always difficult to go last and, and recap from everyone, but uh, on, on palm oil and tropical crops, the whole issue around commodity trading, uh, because traders need to optimize cost and respond to, to demands. Uh, and commodities are fungible and, and are traded on the basis of things like quality, color, specifications, but not on intangible values like organic, deforestation-free or child labor. Uh, the concept of provenance, which makes wine unique, helps with that. I will add to, uh, to it the, 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 the issue of land, land rights play a massive role in here. Small property, usually family owned versus vast amounts of land devoted to, let's say, exchange traded commodities like wheat or soy. That makes a big difference. Uh, learning from the mistakes, as Simon said, uh, being slow to respond, too late, too little, uh, and not having the industry behind um, is, is one of the characteristics of many commodities, not only palm oil. Um, standards, um, I, I agree, uh, they do not necessarily solve the problem, but they brings it brings discipline, it brings the, 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 the producers and the NGOs and the governments together into a very complex issue, which is the production of any agricultural commodity. Uh, and it puts on the table biodiversity, inequality, climate action, as uh, Simon was saying. In, in my view, how wine producers compare with other farmers in terms of their sustainability approach, um, those on palm oil and soy and cocoa tend to be finally addressing sustainability as a result of a lot of pressure from environmental activists and campaigners. But wine producers are much more likely to be self-motivated or perhaps motivated by the need to distinguish themselves in an oversupplied market. So I think that's a, it's an interesting um, different. Uh, the concept of premium has been eroded, not sufficient to cover the real action on the ground. That's that's uh, that's 
dramatic for many commodities. We spent, uh, I, I can speak now from the CGF, a lot of time on certification. And I think we ended up creating islands of excellence, but that does not address the systemic issue of deforestation. Even if you certify all the supply chains of all the CGF members, deforestation will still happen in some of these areas. And I think I will stop there. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Ignacio. Yes, you're right. I mean, there certainly is, sometimes the sustainability is, is uh, a question of islands in the stream, as you, as you say. Uh, can you just very quickly um, comment on the question I put to Bastian uh, at the start of the session about uh, the dangers when expansion occurs? It's so many of the problems that have occurred in the palm oil sector and soy and other, the other of these massive um, commodities occur when there is expansion. What, what, what would you characterize as the risks that the wine sector needs to avoid when thinking of expand, expansion? Well, obviously, deforestation will be the first one that I can think, and land rights. Um, I'm only aware of, of a massive expansion on Prosecco, for example, in the region where Prosecco is produced because of the super high demand uh, as one of the least expensive um, sparkling wines. Um, when you have an expansion uh, of, of land in an area like Central Europe, where land rights are very tricky and cost of land is very expensive, there is a risk in there from uh, forest fires that can be, you know, appearing in the middle of the summer uh, from land disputes. So that to me, in the context of Central Europe is, is or some of the other areas in the US, it's, it's the main risk. Deforestation in areas where land rights are not that strong will be, um, uh, especially in, in less mature countries from that land right perspective will be the main risk. But I mean, we're talking about 8 million hectares of land in the world that is devoted to vines. Um, uh, it's expanding um, and that's good. And I think countries like South Africa had big issues with, with those land rights in the expansion, but um, it's still moderate. It's not a soy. We're talking about 100 million hectares and a huge expansion every day eating into the, the forest. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, Ignacio. Um, and thanks, everyone, for the... the I'm, I'm really enjoying the, the chat. It's um, a, a kind of like a parallel conversation going on in many respects in the chat. So really interesting as well. I want to bring out some of the aspects or some of the issues that are coming up there. So, Bastian, I want to go back to you. Um, and it comes back to the, actually, the first points that was put in the chat. And it's around um, uh, the risks around commoditization. We talked about this, about this a little bit earlier on. So, Bastian, can you add anything further about how to ensure that the wine sector avoids the, the, the commoditization risks that uh, palm oil, soy, beef have, uh, have encountered? I would say what I understand from, from the different discussions which have been very interesting uh, on the chat is that uh, there is already a part of the wine that is kind of commodity, low cost, uh, and that this commoditization is kind of a bulk and this commoditization is justified by the need to have a very low cost for the consumer because of pressure from retailers, et cetera. That's what I understand. So while commoditization is, is one of the answers to, to, to the low cost, I would argue that better management of the properties is, is, is a way to achieve low cost. You can, you, can, uh, you can actually spend less and do better in terms of sustainability. The second point I would say is that you always pay the cost at some time, okay? So either it's a society who pays the cost, either it's your consumers, but your brands as well can, can pay the cost. So 
you you will you will see it as as companies. I mean, we, we we live in a transparent world. Every man and his phone is a journalist. So you'll have students going out and figuring out whether you know these these orchards are, are using child labor or forced labor or migrant labor in such and such conditions, and they make they make the news like you saw recently. I mean, the palm oil have been uh, uh, educated uh, or living through this all the time, and it's it's painful. And the problem is when that happens, everyone's suffering. It's wine that is suffering, not just that brand, everyone, uh, including the retailer who's put them on the market, et cetera. So my, my view is to avoid commoditization is really to ask the questions, where does it come from? And even if it's bulk, it's come from somewhere. At some point, there is someone who's pruned that orchard and that harvested that orchard or that vineyard, that vineyard and, and that's put the fruits to a collection point where they've been crushed and 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 uh, and where the juice is extracted. So at the end of the day, this is the I'm probably not using the same word the the good uh, English words for the wine industry or wine supply chain, but anyway, uh, you get me. So ev eventually, find out where it comes from, investigate about what's happening. And yes, there can be bulk, there can be a level of commoditization. Find that in a proactive manner to figure out what's happening, how it's been produced. What's the level of environmental and social quality that you as a brand, you will accept and that you will not accept and control it in the same way you control the other parameters of quality and, and uh, which doesn't stop you from having bulk operations, but you need to figure out where it comes from. And eventually you have a map of the vineyards that have brought the fruits to these, to these bottles uh, at some stage. And that is, you don't need necessarily to tell the whole story to the consumer. You might not be able to verify or certify all that with nice labels, but at least you know, and at least you're working towards that. Okay, so I mean, it is end of the day, it comes down to, as, as Simon pointed out earlier, where is it from, who produces it, and how is it produced? And also, I would add on top of that, it's got to be valuing the product. If you don't value your own product, then no one else will. And too often, the seems to me that the problems in many other commodities is simply that there's no value attached to the product. Would you agree? I would say, I would say that eventually to achieve a lower price, some strategies are to push the cost to a vulnerable human, a worker that is forced to work under price or to extract capital from nature. Uh, and this is why deforestation is a cheap way to access fertility, okay? Uh, and there are other ways to, to, to do things badly so that it costs less. And these people who try to do these practices in a commodity market that doesn't regard and doesn't ask those three questions you've mentioned, they thrive. Because they come to the brand and say, I've got the cheapest and I've got the cheapest and you'll make money, more money with me or you, you'll win more market share with me. And eventually there is, a, there is a bottom level to which you cannot push even more, you know, the extraction and, 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 and the issues to, to vulnerable people or to, to nature. So it's what is this basic line that you don't accept to cross to do business? And, and as a brand, you have control over that because you specify what quality you want. So you can say, I don't accept migrant labor who have no contract. I don't accept that. And, and I will work to get there. It might not be able to do, you might not be able to do it straight away. But if you figure out with your suppliers what the problems are, why they do this, and you start working with them, you'll see it doesn't cost so much at the end of the day. Okay, thank you very much, Bastian. Um, I want to move to a slightly different topic, uh, thinking in terms of, of regulation uh, versus voluntary uh, measures uh, and the relative uh, value of them both. Um, Simon, Simon Lord, for you, when is regulation important and when 
are voluntary measures uh, going to work just as well? Simon? Uh, regulation is never not unimportant. I mean, there's, there's three things that, that governments can do. They can legislate, they can incentivise, or they can create an enabling environment, and then they can monitor the progress along that. I think more strides have been made in Malaysia in this... Uh, I like the... Sorry, I'll go back. The analogy of these islands of excellence, not in a river, but in a sea of mediocrity, I think is something that we should consider. And I think with the RSPO, we've had these islands of excellence. But as other people have said, deforestation, for example, continues. Where we've had a great strides is when the Malaysian government has introduced a mandatory standard because more players have been brought into this movement. Now, you can criticise the fact, and perhaps rightly so, that the standard isn't as high as some of the voluntary standards around the world. You have to see that as a stepping stone. And I think it's done more in Indonesia and in Malaysia to bring more players to the table and to get them to move forward in what is the most pressing issues, which I'll say again, biodiversity, climate action and inequality, and to start addressing those. And that's the result of government. Uh, voluntary gets you so far. Uh, legislation gets you a lot further. And we should all be looking at that kind of leg legislation, which enables us to do. Look at the, the whole recycling event. It's, it's interesting to see, it, as Sebastian said, all these side comments. And it is like a, a second, second conversation going on. You know, how are we going to solve the four R's unless we start to really legislate? And that enabling environment is creative. And there is an incentive for the consumer to start actually taking action as well. And that's the role of government. You know, I often question whether we should even consider government as a stakeholder because they are the government and it is the framework in which all the other stakeholders sit. And that's why I think advocacy and lobbying are so important to effect change at that level. Okay, thanks, Simon. Anna, let me turn to you. Uh, for Tesco, uh, going back to the packaging point, if there was regulation on uh, impact of packaging, would that then be the time that potentially you'd have to think about how you package certain things, wine being one of them? Yeah, I mean, I just, I'd just echo um, what Simon's just said very eloquently. I think good regulation is incredibly important um, and we need more of it, to be honest, uh, because we need to create a level playing field. Um, it's the it's the phrase of, you know, <laughs> the classic sustainability phrase. We talk a lot about it, but unless you have a level playing field, you're not going to be able to actually create that step change shift right across the value chain, um, including, you know, retail. So, yeah, and we're starting to see it on, on packaging. I mean, I put some comments in the in the chat in the UK. We've got deposit return schemes coming in. And you can argue whether or not they're clunky and they're effective and they're right but they're coming in. <laughs> um, the challenge is having good regulation that's effective and joined up. Uh, we're not seeing that happen at the moment. Scotland, God bless it, cracking on, going first, leading the way, you know, up the rest of UK not lined up currently. Now that has an impact on the consumer, right? Because it sends conflicting messages and, and conflicting messages to business. But absolutely, um, I, I mean, just, you know, we talk about commodities, but it's worth saying that right now, UK is just legislated first phase for corporate due diligence on deforestation. Now, that's a requirement that will be on companies, including Tesco, 
But that requirement goes back to the supply chain as well. So we will be expecting our suppliers to be able to demonstrate that the products and the ingredients in our supply chains are, are not coming from deforested areas. EU are doing something similar right now. It's currently up for consultation. And that goes broader to human rights and corporate governance. Legislation is coming. What we, sh we should welcome it. But what we want is effective, good regulation that enables the right changes and incentivizes the right sustainable action, not being prohibitive to creating those changes. Thanks. And uh, Gordon, how much do you think that the uh, deposit return scheme, which has come up a lot in the chat, what's the whisky industry in Scotland? Uh, how is it engaging with the potential deposit return scheme? And is it something that's going to be a big game changer for the sector? Uh, and when do you think there will be a time when uh, the sector will be happy to put whiskey into plastic bottles? Ah, three questions. I think that the DRS is something that um, I can't speak for all suppliers, but uh, the conversations I was involved in, um, which were more actually in the beer industry than in, than in, in whiskey, uh, are um, that it's coming. You can't avoid it. The way that it's coming in, uh, I, I think the the industry voice would say is a, a little bit clumsy uh, and is going to cause uh, quite a lot of unintended consequences. So to Anna's point about well-drafted and thoughtful legislation, which uh, incentivizes the right behaviors and gives industries creativity room to grow and to become more sustainable, this is possibly not an example of that, but it, but it is a start. Um, at the moment, uh, frankly, I'm, uh, I'm seeing more conversations and worrying about uh, Brexit labelling, uh, which is right on our doorstep. Who knows what news we'll get in the next week or so uh, than, than about the DRS. And I think a combination of, um, uh, of Brexit and uh, and the coronavirus have allowed producers to sort of worry about their uh, immediate dumpster fires before they get onto, before they get onto that one. The question about um, plastic bottles, I have seen um, the whisky industry is uh, it's quite good for um, very vocal, uh, passionate um, influencers, and and everyone's trying to learn the latest thing on how a certain type of whiskey matures. What's the effect of temperature? What's does it uh, um, get better or worse if there's a little bit out of the bottle and you leave it in your your cabinet for a year? You know, all this sort of chat goes on, and people have looked at the effect on flavour of um, of uh, of plastic versus glass and. I don't know how scientific the, the analysis was, but there's definitely a perception that the plastic is going to taint the whiskey if it's kept for, for any time in it. So um, uh, who knows where that'll go. Um, again, just to refer to my uh, beer experience, which I had previous to whiskey, um, there was a huge shift maybe three or four years ago to back to cans for premium small cans of premium craft beers uh, as partly driven by sustainability, partly by convenience, partly just by it's a trend and it looked cool. Um, but that was a, a packaging which 10 years ago people would have thought was poor and tainted the flavour of your beer and you got it in, in cans because it was cheap and you could get a slab at a time. Whereas now you can buy, you can spend £2 on a little can of beer quite easily, which is an interesting shift. I don't quite know how it came, but it wasn't big producers driving that. It wasn't massive marketing campaigns driving that. It was quite craft-led. It was quite small producer-led and quite um, probably pragmatic decisions around how I can I get this product into, into more people's hands. Uh, and I suspect the change in spirits will come the same way. Thank you, Gordon. I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to go down a Brexit rabbit hole. I want to bring in Ignacio. Um, very quickly, Ignacio, for you, what, what sort of regulation have you seen that, that works well? Briefly, if you would, we're, coming out of, we're running out of time. I do want to put one final question to the panel. Ignacio. Um, 
that's a good question. Um, when it comes to packaging, um, any regulation that is faced and helps companies to go from from A to B. Um, I'm trying to think on PET on. There's there's still very little legislation out there. It's mostly um, voluntary agreements. But any any legislation that is faced and and it's designed with industry at the table, uh, I think will be will be good for this whole packaging. I was just thinking in my mind if I will drink a Chateau Latour 2001 out of a plastic bottle, but um, it might it might happen in the future. But um, I think you. it depends what you can get, Ignacio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank, thank you, Nice. Right. One final question for everybody. We're only coming close to the end of our time. Uh, I want everybody to think of the one message they have for the wine sector uh, in 20 seconds or less. Uh, Bastian. I must before ask, ask where it comes from, how it's been made, um, and, uh, and figure out uh, uh, of the issues in a proactive manner before they bite you. Thanks, Bastian. Simon. Treat sustainability as a parameter of quality and look at the value at risk, particularly with the coming climate change. Okay, thank you, Simon. Uh, Anna? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd echo uh, the points made and just say build sustainability into your brand proposition and, and make sure it's on the table for all your conversations when you're selling it in to retailers and other companies. Always have wine on the table. Very good point. <laughs> Absolutely. Gordon. I'd say um, t tell your story well. Be proud of where you, where you come from and, and recognise the value that that can have. Uh, harness scarcity. If, if your practices make your product more scarce, that makes it more valuable as well. Thank you, Gordon. And uh, Ignacio. Yeah, I would like a product, product proof to consumers have a story, have a good narrative behind. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I would have happily carried on for an awful lot longer. Um, I hope it's been useful and interesting for those of you in the wine sector listening. Um, certainly, it's been a fascinating conversation for me, and I, I've enjoyed looking at the chat for, for sure. But thank you very much indeed um, to, to Simon, to Ignacio, to Anna, to Gordon, and to Bastian. Great conversations, and thank you for your insight and your candour.